0: Trailer Talk coming right up, right here on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania.
1: Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people, whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer. From the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. Nancy Bowen is a mixed media artist known for her eclectic mixtures of imagery and materials in both two and three dimensions. Her work has been shown throughout the United States and Europe, and she is the recipient of numerous awards. Today, we're going to be speaking about her show Spectral Evidence, which is in the Sullivan County Catskills at the Catskill Art Society in the Laundry King space. It is inspired by a true story of colonial American judgment and repentance. She states that this installation, in the process of making it, became markers of COVID death, of gun violence death, and of other senseless killings. They took on a feeling of collective mourning for all that has been lost during these difficult times. I'm Sabrina, welcome to Trailer Talk. I am in person, so this is an exciting moment. And I want to introduce you to Artist Nancy Bowen. We are in the space where her installation is located in Livingston Manor, New York, in the Sullivan County Catskills. This is part of the Catskill Art Society exhibition in their Laundry King space on Main Street. It is May 15th, 2021. Nancy is going to give me a tour. We're going to walk around this space. And we're going to talk about what led her to create this work and some of these themes. Nancy, welcome.
0: I'm really glad to be here, Sabrina. I'm really excited to be on Trailer Talk with you today. I set up this installation with basically two opposing parts to tell this kind of complex story. And I want to start here with the image of my ancestor, Samuel Sewell. Samuel Sewell, if you've heard of him at all, you know that he was one of the judges in the Salem witch trials back in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. But you probably don't know what his story was after the witch trials happened. And that, in fact, is a complex story Of repentance, recanting, and um, atonement. And that was the story that I was drawn to tell. I grew up in Rhode Island, and I am an 11th generation descendant of Samuel Sewell's brother. So not direct line, but he would have been my great, 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 uncle. But I grew up knowing that I had a Salem witch judge and another famous ship captain as ancestors. When I was a teenager and became a feminist, I thought, "Ooh, this is a horrible ancestor to have. And I sort of never mentioned it and wasn't really interested in the history of my family, etc. I actually don't remember what it was that drew me to look into him a little more. But about five years ago, I decided to go to Salem and, you know, see what was there in terms of information. I went to, there is a Salem Witch Museum, which is kind of a Disney World wax museum kind of place. And they had an incredible bookstore. And in the bookstore one book leapt out at me and it was called Samuel Sewell Colin, the making of the American moral conscience. And I thought, Hmm, I have no idea what they're talking about, but I need to buy that book and find out. So I read it. And the short story is that he was really bothered by this idea of spectral evidence, which is the name of the show. And what spectral evidence is, is quote-unquote, witchy evidence, where I would say, oh, I had a dream last night that Sabrina turned her dog into a cow. She must be a witch, and everyone would agree. They'd say, she's a witch. She's got to be executed. And that was kind of the law they were using at the time. And he had his doubts about it, but there were nine other judges, and nobody else worried about it, so he went along with it. And I just want to describe a little bit, with your help, Nancy, what I'm looking
1: at. So first of all, I'm looking at a person with their arms up, with Puritan-type white cuffs, with a kind of knit gray sweater. I'm looking at just the torso, and I'm looking at what I imagine is like a horse's uh, horse hair. And then a very disturbing Part of this sculpture is a kind of multi-tiered sculptures on platforms of nooses. And there are many of them. And we're talking about the the murders of witches. We're talking about the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts. And and who has this family member from the late 1600s who was responsible uh, for some of these murders. Okay, so take it from there.
0: Okay, yes, everything you said is completely accurate. I took the bow and the cuffs from a picture that's in the Boston MFA of Samuel Sewell and the black hat also. And you are right, you were seeing horse hair coming out of a gray sweater. Well, okay, so five years after the trial, he realized that he had made a mistake and that spectral evidence wasn't substantial law and that he should repent. And he stood up in church, being a good, devout Puritan, and he got his minister to read his confession. And he did try to get the other judges to recant, but surprise, they wouldn't. So he was sort of the lone person up there, and it really, it affected his social standing. He was one of the most prominent people in the town at the time. And I was making this during, Trump's regime. And I have to say that a big part of my motivation was just this idea of like, wow, what if someone, one of these powerful, white, horrible men who's done so much harm in our country could get up and say, oh, I made a mistake and I'm going to take the consequences. It it really was like my wishful thinking. When he stood up in church and did that, he wore a hair shirt after that, and that's where this horse hair comes in. This is not what a hair shirt looks like, and in fact, I have in all my research not been able to actually find a picture of a hair shirt, but I found descriptions And basically, they took a white cotton shirt, wove horsehair into it, so it went inside the shirt and pricked you and reminded you all the time, you've sinned, you've been bad, you've got to think about God and be good. Those Puritans. Yes, those Puritans. Thank goodness, those days are, well, sort of over. As an artist, I don't have to be true to the facts. And so I ordered a bunch of horsehair and... I ordered this hair, and I started weaving it into the sweater, which you noticed, and I couldn't figure out, like, what to use as a structure, and then I realized that my own mother, who was Phyllis Sewell Bowen, Brown Bowen, um, was a big knitter, and she actually knit me that sweater, and she's passed on. But I thought, I'm going to bring her into this and have her help me. So I took a sweater that she had made for me that was one of those giant kind of sweaters from the 80s, and I cut it up and I started weaving the horsehair into it. And because that's such an extreme act of self-torture, I just kind of went wild with and turned him into sort of an animal almost. I mean, that's what it reads to me and down his back i wove horsehair braids and then hung these gallows off it
1: right so walking around to the other side of this sculpture there are these uh, the steps leading up to the gallows the nooses and i suspect that there are 20 here representing the murdered which is that he was responsible for convicting. And you are
0: totally correct. I wanted to make a literal depiction of his guilt and the remorse that he might feel and have the weight of the gallows on him physically. And as a sculptor, you always have a problem. Okay, I have this torso. What's the pedestal going to be? And first I had him on a regular pedestal and after about a month in my studio, I was like, that just isn't right. And so then I built this kind of, I looked around, I had a ton of scrap wood, and I built something that was scaffolding-esque with the scraps. And I was making, actually, there was a time during COVID, in the very beginning of COVID, where my studio, which is in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, the Navy Yard closed it. So I had to go home and. I'm a person who can't not work or can't not use my hand, so I brought balsa wood home, and that's when I started making all these small maquettes of the gallows. Everyone thinks the witches were burned, and witches were burned. Certainly, many witches in Europe were burned, but the Salem witches were not burned. They were hung, they were mostly hung from trees, but many of them were hung from gallows. And you are right that there are 20 gallows here because I wanted each one of these witches to speak to him. And that brings me to the other part of the installation.
1: Yes, so I'm also, I want to ask you, because these images of the gallows, of the nooses, what you're describing, what happened to the witches, of course, we have such a legacy in this country. Of that happening to our black Americans, mm-hmm. uh, uh, among other people, but of course, in great great number and so i'm I'm interested, as you were creating these images, how you began as an artist to think about these symbols of of murders, of hangings, and how you are marking these twenty women's deaths.
0: And actually, they weren't all women. That's the other thing that is really interesting. I mean, the more research I did, the more complicated this story became. In fact, out of the 20 witches here, there are six men. There are children in here. There's one minister who was killed, George Burroughs. But while I was making these, we went from COVID to Black Lives Matters. And my apartment happens to be really close to Grand Army Plaza, which is the center of protesting in Brooklyn. So I was really aware and really sympathetic of everything going on there. And
1: And even the hands-up gesture of your ancestor.
0: Yes, the hands-up gesture was... in. Again, this is a sculptural thing. Early on, I had him holding a bowl, making an offering to the heavens. It just didn't look right. I couldn't make it work visually. So then I just had him with his hands up, which is at one time a renunciation and asking for help from the gods, but it's also a power fist in the air kind of thing. But as I was making these what I think of as gravestones for each of the witches. Can you describe them for us? Yes, I will. Each one of them is sort of a lumpy gray mass that kind of looks like a gravestone. And each one of them has a head and wings that I took as inspiration the imagery that it's called a death angel. And if you've been in any cemeteries in upstate New York or New England, you've probably seen it. It's a skull with wings on either side of it. The skull connotes the physical body has died. We're rotting. The wings show that we're going to heaven, hopefully. I took that image and played with it in each one of them. The way I made them was I rolled ceramic Slabs and used underglaze and scratching and um, a color palette that ranged from white to black with a little bit of blue in it. And um, put each one of the heads and wings into the mass of the gravestone. You'll also notice that each one of them has a pair of shoes emerging somewhere in the bottom of the piece. Mm -hmm. I wanted these what I'm calling gravestone angels, I guess, to be both earthbound and heavenbound, or rising up in protest, actually. Oh, rising up, Uh, yes, rising
1: up in protest. And I do sense this tension between going both downward and upward in these sculptures. And there is, even though they're, as you say, kind of, um, did you say lumpy? Is that because, you know, kind of lumpy concrete.
0: I wanted them to look a little bit like folk art, or also I wanted them to look, when you go to these old New England cemeteries, they're all falling apart at this point. I wanted them to look heavy and solid, but also like malleable in some way and what i did with the surfaces of them was i used rocks shells glitter and beads and sort of inserted them into a surface of paper pulp plaster glue and um, pigments dark pigments to get this kind of so that they all kind of look the same but that each one has its own personality and i want to just add one thing and that is I think they're a little funny and they're kind of meant to have a little bit of humor in them. And Why
1: did you want that? Why did did you want to transmit some sort of levity to the viewer?
0: I think probably because I can't handle death myself. (laughs) Okay. okay. I mean, I really think it was that personal that I I needed to have a moment of um, access I guess for people
1: okay so Nancy so speaking of your own tension with trying to uh, to deal with death how did you because you were making this work during COVID we're a year plus out of the height of it at this point still of course in the
0: global pandemic but how did it impact the story you wanted to tell well I hope this is going to answer your question, what changed for me was that it became not so much about this particular story that I was telling, I'm going to cry, but it took on the deaths of people that I knew who were dying of COVID. and um. Struggles in, in the Black Lives Matter community, George Floyd, all the deaths of um, black people around the country. And it was just like a way for me to process grief in some way. So that became very hands-on and comforting for me to make these. And I felt like, um, I felt like it was very soothing for me. And I think people, you know, I was posting these on Instagram, and people were really responding to them in that way. It's like, oh, these are perfect for this time right now. It's sort of, you know, people didn't necessarily even know what they were about, but they were just like, oh, yeah, of course you're making gravestones. Each one of them, if I show you the bottom, each one is a particular person. So this is Giles Corey, and... I think. Yes, Yes, Giles Corey. None of them identified as witches. They were Giles Corey actually is one. I don't know facts about each one of them, but I do know about Giles Corey. And Giles Corey was a farmer that was having a land dispute with one of the judges. And it seemed like, I mean, again, there's so many parallels to things that are happening today where powerful people who are in charge were able to get rid of people that they didn't like. And in fact, Giles Corey is the one person who wasn't hung. He was pressed to death, which means they put stones on him until... And they kept going, you can confess, you can confess. And he wouldn't confess because he wasn't a witch. And so they crushed him to death. And it was a public spectacle. And it was recorded. And part of the reason we know all this is because... My ancestor Samuel Sewell kept a diary, and he kept a diary for about 40 years, and it managed to last, and it's in the collection of the Boston Historical Society. And he wrote about the trials, but he also wrote about daily life. And so a lot of what we know about 17th century colonial life, we know from his diary, which to me was really fascinating. But a bunch of these people, there is Mary Parker and Alice Parker, a mother and daughter. You know, the daughter was about 12 years old. Was she a witch? I doubt it. There are people, uh, some of the women who were killed were killed because they were basically the equivalent of a person with mental illness now. You know, they screamed a lot in the street or whatever. Well, they must be a witch because they're not conforming to puritanical right. behavior. Well, as you say,
1: it, it, it was about conforming and it was about using the law. Even as you say, your family member, who was one of the judges who made these convictions and was responsible for these murders of these people who were named witches. It was about conforming to the social norms of the time, to religious order, to right political system of the time. That, you know, is what you're describing. I also see here in this gallery space, I'm speaking with artist Nancy Bowen in Livingston Manor, New York, in the Catskill Arts Society space, The Laundry King. So we have the black, white, and gray part of the installation with these sculptures you've been describing to us, starting, starting with Samuel Sewell and then moving to these gravestone-like sculptures of the people that were killed. And then on one wall of the gallery space are these very colorful paintings Can you describe them and what the writing is and this other connection to this history?
0: Yes. What this is, is while I was doing this research early on, one of my friends, the poet Charles Bernstein, said, you have to meet my friend Elizabeth Willis. She was a descendant of one of the witches, and in her last book of poetry at the time, this was like four years ago, she had written a poem called The Witch. So I bought her book. I read the poem. It's a fabulous poem. It has 46 stanzas. And I did meet her. She lives in Iowa and teaches poetry in the Iowa Writers Workshop. Um, But she has a place in New York and she came into town. We got together. She's like, fine, take my poem and do, yes, if I wanted to do a drawing for each line of the poem. And we decided that it would be like the generations of, you know, now, the generations of the executioner and the executed coming together and doing a yes. positive yes. project together and sort of changing the history. Right, so you
1: have the voices from each side exactly. represented in yourself And and this poet.
0: And it's a wonderful poem where she had been... She's a poet who also does deep dives into research. And she had researched witch um, behavior or whatever from all over the world. And there are lines in here that were inspired, she told me, from watching movies, old German expressionist movies about witches, um, from witch quote-unquote which writings my
1: eye goes to she may appear to be acting in a silent film whose placards are missing and then this one here uh she may appear to frown when she believes she is smiling
0: that's one of my favorite ones (laughs) who doesn't do that exactly and if you keep reading here yes um... Oh, I love this. A witch may cry out sharply at the sight of a known criminal dying of thirst. And I either drew with my own hand drawings or I took collages from a big sort of image archive that I have. So, for instance, this one down here, a witch will neither sink nor swim. This is an image that I've used before in other collages, and it comes from a... 18th century swimming manual, and this one, um, an unrepentant witch may be converted with a little lead in the eye. 82 is the um, number for lead in the elemental chart. Mm -hmm. And I drew an eye. So, you know, there's sort of poetic um, interpretations of her lines oh, of poetry.
1: And then, of course, this witch uh, is is horrid. An executioner may find the body of a witch insensitive to an iron spike.
0: Yes. That brings us back to more sort of common tropes about mm-hmm. the witches. And I did them on really... I, I, I love color. I mean, it... The installation that I made, the sculptural installation, I've never done something that's just black, white, and gray before. Um, this, the color in the suite of drawings is more typical for me. Right, which are
1: vibrant greens and reds and, blues and kind of a hottish pink and looking at the colors and the, and the contrast,
0: exactly.
1: you know, bright yellow and amber. They're almost like a deck of uh, let's say like tarot cards or something.
0: Now it's funny that you said that because my wish is I want to make a book out of this and the way I'm imagining it is a book, an artist book that's in a box in the form of tarot cards, large tarot cards, where the text and the image are on one side and then the other side um, has a pattern or something like that so that you can mix them up. And I asked Elizabeth, the poet, whether she was okay with that idea. Just so long as they're numbered, she was fine with sort of mm-hmm. rearranging mm-hmm. the stances
1: and all that. Right. Well, I, I can definitely see that. I mean, maybe we're witches because we exactly. were just thinking the same thoughts <laughs> or I maybe was reading your mind. So what does that say about me?
0: <laughs> it says you're going to be executed soon, so be careful.
1: <laughs> yes. So um, what would you like to share with our listeners before we conclude?
0: Well, the one thing I was thinking and you just made me think of it by what you just said is that in some way this is a cautionary tale and i'd like people to take that away um that it's never too late to say you're sorry and it would be helpful if you did it before 20 people were killed but so thank you you're so welcome thank you i've been speaking
1: with artist nancy bowen about her exhibition Spectral evidence at the Catskill Art Society exhibition, Space, The Laundry King, in Livingston Manor, New York. Just really want to thank you, much to think about, about these legacies that we carry, our personal ones, our societal ones, about death, about mourning and loss, which you so graciously shared with us that has been part of this process for you as well in the making of the work. Thank you very much. Spectral evidence at the Catskill Arts Society Laundry King Space in Livingston Manor, New York is on view through June 19th if you're local. To find out more about Nancy, please visit nancybowenstudio.com. To find out more about the Catskill Arts Society, please visit catskillartsociety.org. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Kit here from Something Old, Something New. Soon it will be summer and live classical music will be back in town. If you just can't wait, tune into this week's Sunday stage for performances recorded live at Weekend of Chamber Music. That's Sunday at 7 on Radio Catskills Sunday Stage. Local arts and culture from the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people, whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline travel trailer from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I am so happy to have as my guest on this virtual trailer talk. We're on the ever-expanding kitchen table here on Zoom Heather Carlucci, who is a psychic medium and medical intuitive. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. So where to begin? Well, how about if you share with us, what does this mean? What do you do? What is it to be a psychic medium and a medical intuitive?
2: Uh, Well, as best as I can explain it, I like to break all those words down so a uh, psychic medium in some ways are, are two different things because you can be a psychic or a medium. I happen to have both. So as a psychic, I read energies and I sort of pick up, I pick up things through, uh, the senses, what they call the eight clair senses. And I happen to have all eight, which means I can hear, uh, see, smell, touch, taste, um, sense, also uh, get downloads of information. A medium is more specifically, uh, more direct, obvious energies. More people would think of it as sort of talking to spirits or souls. And then, of course, as a medical intuitive, it, that comes up very differently for me. I, um, For whatever reason, I have, since I was as young as I can remember, been able to pick up what's going on with people's bodies. So diagnose things, um, figure out why things are happening medically.
1: These are all such vast areas of experience, aren't they, and information? So how do you, Heather, yourself manage these realms, and how do you even define them? How do you come to understand them?:
2: Well, it's interesting because you know every person that does the kind of work I do, and sort of as a blanket term, we're called light workers. Anything that a light worker does um I personally don't feel like it can define everything because we never stop learning. And one of the things that I take very seriously for me is science. I think everything that I do has something to do with science. We just don't know what that connection is yet. We don't have it. Quantum physics sort of touches upon it and at least um, attempts to validate it in very obvious ways. Me personally, all I know is that energy doesn't die. We know that, science 101, right? Um, It can only change shape. And I believe that is where everything comes from. Um, But I, I, I don't really define it. It's just, it's sort of what happens when I come up with wording that I'm comfortable with. I can present the situation. It took me a while to come up with the title that I needed, which is Psychic Medium and Medical Intuitive, because I wasn't completely aware of everything I could do for a very long time. Because as you know, I'm of a certain age and I had one very long career. And this has only been and I've been doing this my whole life, but only as a career maybe the last five to seven years.
1: For our listeners, what you're referring to is that for decades you were in the food industry. You were chef of Top Baker in New York City and very right. known for those things.
2: Yes, yes. So you,
1: you were, so to speak, in the closet, I think, about these other abilities.
2: So when did you come out and why? You know, it's always a tipping point. Um, A, I very much was heading the end of my food career. I couldn't take it anymore. It was 30 years. It started right out of pretty much at 18. So I was riding right through. My body couldn't handle it anymore. And honestly, I was falling out of love with it. I'm back in love with it now that I don't have to do it every day at that level. If you don't love it, you cannot do it like that, you know, because you have to be blind to your body <laughs> and logic and everything to do it. And then it was almost like I couldn't help myself but read. And it was always something I kind of had on the side. I knew I was weird about it. I knew things kind of came up. And it was bubbling over a long period of time. And then finally, a good friend of mine said to me, you have to do this. And he was sort of upset about it. And then, of course, as the story always goes, he passed away about a couple weeks later. And I thought to myself, well... <laughs> You know, it's short. He was an older gentleman, um, but life is short, and I better get on it because he said so.
1: <laughs> much. Right. So he was a kind of a mentor.
2: Uh, yeah, kind of. He was. It's interesting because he was also a gifted medium, but he wasn't so much a mentor in that way. But he was definitely a life mentor. I would say that.
1: Heather, thank you for sharing this. I am speaking with Heather Carlucci, who is a psychic a medium and a medical intuitive, a light worker, as you say. A light worker, yeah. A light worker. How did you know that you were good, that you were, let's say, right? I mean, how does one know this? You said you knew as a young child that you had these abilities, but you weren't public about it, and you spent a huge portion of your younger adult life not in this light worker realm so how did you know oh i can do this with other people and i can provide some sort of guidance
2: things start to come out and when you share things with people as you become older like i shared it with i didn't this gentleman woody his name is woody brooks um i didn't share it with him until we're friends for about five years and he said to me i am as well and i was Fold over, and then we, could, right? we kept it from each other because it's the kind of thing, right now, people are freer with this. Only 10, 15, 20 years ago, people were not as free with this. And of course, I came from a very major career before. So it wasn't like I was leaving food for real estate. I already knew that it was happening. It had been a number of years. What was interesting to me was that I could sit down and do it for an hour in front of somebody and not stop. And once I allowed myself that freedom, it came quite easily because so much of dealing with intuition and everybody has what I have. We just have it at different levels, right? Intuition is part of our general makeup. It's part of our creativity. It's and all humans are creative. Whether we think we are or not, we're all creative. We've just decided in this world that, you know, in our culture, in our society, like you're creative and you're not, you know, but we all are. And once you can allow yourself to tap into it, lots of interesting things can happen. And at one point, I could not get a job anymore in food that wasn't in the kitchen. And it was like it was getting a message. I even applied for a barista position at Starbucks because I'm a single parent. And I was like, I got to do something. And I could not get a job. Nobody (laughs) would call me back. And there was like a 90-year-old man with no feet behind behind the counter and I couldn't and I was like but some people were like I will give you money if you can do a reading for me because I would say a couple things here and there and I always stuck to medical for a very long time and I was really limiting myself I'm like I'll only do medical and then I said well I'll do everything but this or I'll do anybody but friends and family and then when you get more comfortable with it and you realize you can separate yourself from your your ego and your emotion when you read and you can really be unbiased towards somebody because that's so important and I think it's something everyone should look for if you're looking for a reader because look my personal beliefs may not match yours but I'm sitting here having to read your humanity and it took years to sort of work on that and I didn't want to be that person that would judge somebody when they walked in the door
1: so to be able to read a person's humanity so you're saying to to be present without a kind of bias and what mm-hmm. you're describing is so different from much of the world we're living in at least it seems to me right now how do you make sense of this how do you work with people how does what you do as a light worker as a, a medium and a medical intuitive
2: how does that connect to the physical world kind of that reality it's interesting because i there's certain things words i would never use for myself um i do what i do i think any information i get that i give i believe because the universe is the universe it is only good and it is only guidance right but i don't consider myself and people do come to me for this, but I first and foremost, am just sort of a vehicle for this. I would never consider myself a coach. I would never consider myself um, a healer. And those are words that don't really work for me. Although I believe that the, the words that I can say and the messages I get are helping. Cause I believe that if you really are open and you are without bias and you are, but with confidence, and without resistance, any message is only to help the other person. Fascinating, so you are called certain things
1: like a coach or a guide or a healer, but you don't take on those frameworks for yourself.
2: People only call me healer because I do medical work. Because a lot of the work that comes through when you're dealing with energy does connect to somebody's trauma, and how it sits in their body and how it blocks them from things like work, romance, life in general, how they deal with their children. And that's information I don't know anything about. I prefer actually not knowing anything about anybody unless they're my client, you know? And I don't remember most of readings in general. And I'm at the point now where I've read thousands of people and half the time, if they pop up on the screen, because now of course everything is Zoom, I don't recognize the name in my calendar app, but I'm like, Oh, it's you (laughs) for me there. There's a really, um, and for those people who have been Al-Anon, I'm going to use a term from there. There's a loving detachment that has to come with the work because, because I can't, I can't put myself in it. First of all, because it's emotional and also where's my emotion comes my bias, right? Because then I'm putting my own experience in it. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. So
1: is it just something innate? Like you just
2: know that you're
1: being connected and that you're a conduit or a
2: messenger? Well, remember, I didn't didn't kick this into into full gear until my late 40s, right? I mean, I realized that I could do this as a young person when I realized other people could not. And it was about six when I realized I would hear people talking, my family, my aunts, my uncles, about like, oh, somebody's going to get, you know, a diagnosis tomorrow. They think it's either this or this. And I was sitting there going, well, because it's that. I mean, <laughs> like, don't you know that? And that happened a lot. And, and especially now that I can sort of, I'm open to it, I think about my childhood and the things that I thought were imagination or something or why I was scared at a certain place at a certain time and only to have something happen right after that. Because children are so much more open than we are. Um, And then it sort of, (laughs) say it picks up steam, but it picked up very slow steam because I wasn't really, I don't think I was really grasping it until the extent of it, until maybe my mid-30s. My late 20s, I did start talking to some people, And sort of put it out there that I had this thing, especially with medical. I only called myself a medical intuitive until really my early 40s. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's way more to this. I'm not just getting better, but I'm opening up to myself. So by the time I was ready to to really, you know, I was bringing people in a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. I was, I've always been drawn to reading books about it and sort of like, oh, I'm very much like this person, but I'm nothing like this person. So Heather, how does you being a medical
1: intuitive work? So somebody calls you or is on Zoom or pre-pandemic, you were in person, mm-hmm. how does it work? And like you said, you're, in addition to being a medical intuitive, you're also a psychic and a medium, but how does this work? Do, does a person come to you and you know, what it is that they're needing, what kind of information?
2: Uh, no, usually not. Um, I mean, sometimes people will email me and say, I have an appointment with you next week. I've never seen you before. These are all my issues. <laughs> and I have to say, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll write back to them and say, I just read the first part. I'm not going to read the rest because personally, I work better with a blank slate. Unless they've already been diagnosed, something's going wrong or, or a doctor gets a hold of me. Yes, there's not that many open-minded <laughs> doctors to this stuff, but there are some and it's been fascinating to work with them. Those also doctors have were giving me a lot of the confidence early on, right? Because it's doctors. So somebody will make an appointment with me. I read somebody two times before I see them in person. I dip in a little bit when I get confirmation of our appointment, you know, it comes up in my calendar app. And then the next time, about five to 10 minutes before I see them on the screen, just to sort of get the vibe. What's interesting, because I always started reading with a little dip into the body, mm. they used to call it the state of the nation, but no, <laughs> changed what I really anymore, gets too contentious for people. So I, I, um, I just, you know, I, I sort of scan them, I'll say I'll scan them to the best of my ability. And what happens with me is that I will pick up in my body what's going on with them. So I'll get a pain somewhere and then I'll kind of register it for myself. Like, Oh, okay. It's, it's left leg. And then I'll, I'll sort of look at them and just, it's not looking at their leg. It's just sort of being with them. And I'll tell them, I'll tell them sometimes it just comes flying out of my mouth and I'm kind of unaware of it and other times and I'll, and I'll talk about what's going on and what I would like them to be careful of. I think I really started that saying it that way because it was easing somebody into the information I was about to give them. If I see grave concern, I always say, get yourself to a professional because I'm not here to be the one to step in. I will ask them how they prefer their medical help. Some people are very much more, I want to go holistic and then I want to go pretty Western medicine. Some people are like, i me the surgeon. And I do respect that because for me, I like a little bit of everything, um, but I want my options
0: at that any given sense. time.
2: If I really think like for a lot of people, because of the way the nervous system is, and because people's nervous systems right now are shot I try to sort of lead them in a way of first figuring out what they're lacking in their nutrition, because that will cause more of a, of an upset in the nervous system. Um, And of course, a lot of things like chiropractic work, medical masseuse, anything with fascia we can't do right now, but I will usually recommend somebody for them to go to or have them find somebody that they're comfortable with. Um, But when I'm reading somebody medically, It always relates as to uh, how I feel it in my body and what I sense from them. It's a sense. It's not, it doesn't mean anything like the psychic work or the medium work.
1: You're speaking about the medical intuitive work right now. And you say that it manifests differently for you than the psychic and the medium work. But Mm -hmm. is there an overlay? Because it's the same
2: person. Oh, sometimes there. Oh, well, I do get. I will, you know, I, like I said, I start with the body and yeah. also when I start with the body, because it sounds very technical when I read it, like I will never bring up chakras because it's just not my language. You know, for some people it's their language. It's no reason why I don't. I just, I believe there are energy centers like anybody else, but, um, I'm much more medical in how it comes to me. I talk plasma, I talk C cells and things like that. So because it's so technical and familiar, and I can kind of ease them into it, people tend to calm down a little bit or just let their, their, you know, walls down. And then it's easier to read everything else.
0: Because I've already been in their
2: presence for about 10, 15 minutes anyway, talking about this stuff. And then I go, okay, I'm going to stop that now because I'm getting information about money work children marriage work. oh i see i see and ha- what are
1: you finding during these times of the pandemic in regards to people's needs who are coming to you for readings but also what may be coming up as you're conducting your right <laughs>
2: um, well i think it's interesting because everybody's sort of like what's going to happen and personally reading what's going to happen, like everyone wants to know what's going to happen in November, right? That's personal and emotional for me. So for me, I don't so much go towards that as saying, one, nothing's going to change that quickly. Just remember that because we are deep in at this point. So whichever way you think this is going to go, keep playing it like you are at the moment. Don't expect everything to change, because a lot of people want things to change in the immediate. The other thing is that it's easier to explain to people what's gonna go on for them in the moment. What's the personal road that they're on? Because it does in fact make it easier. Yes, we have this huge things happening and it's affecting all of us. And it's, it's the quarantine and the pandemic, and it's everything that's happening politically, and it's changing everything that happens to socioeconomic issues, racial issues, everything, right? But we still have to live every day, and people still have to get up and go to work every day, and usually that's what comes up for the individual person because messages have been so clear that way. It's important that people have to, we still have the opportunity now to to work, even people who are losing work, I always say to them, and I get this in the reading, and sometimes certain things repeat when they're talking about a big blanket situation like this. And of course, I've never had to read in the middle of, of, you know, a culture changing moment. But a big thing that keeps coming up is for people who can't find work, don't look for your job title, look for your skill set. Like a lot of my friends are chefs because of my past career. And they're like, what am I going to do? Because that's over for as long as we can possibly imagine at this point You're like well what do you know you also know inventory you know management you know crisis management you know hr there are things that chefs know because it is such a woven job position and that's been very helpful for a lot of people but it really has to do with their direction because the money didn't go away the money's still here we just have to figure out what our needs are now as as a culture and as a society to regain money into our own lives. So in doing all of this work, and as you said
1: that you've never had to read during a culture changing moment, and we're talking about this pandemic, right? So how how is this shaping your own, I want to say, perspective or maybe your own life, your in this position to be able to work with people as a light worker, as a medium, a psychic and a medical intuitive. And many of us aren't in that position. I guess,
2: what is it that you're discovering at this time? Well, I will say I don't read for myself. (laughs) So, uh, because I don't think that's healthy and I don't think it's really clearly possible for me. Fascinating. Because I can be unbiased about other people. I don't think you can be unbiased about yourself. <laughs> that is fascinating. Right. Um, yeah. And it's important for me to live like a person on the earth. Otherwise, who know? I would just, my brain would just fly away. <laughs> and I am a very down to earth person, largely. I don't sort of walk around in the clouds unless I'm working. And even then, you're still talking to me. Um, but I would say this, and the difference for me has been because this is such an obscure thing to do for a living, and I might be doing something else if it wasn't paying the bills, right? I really had to jump and wait for the net to appear. And I wasn't getting any other options, really, because I was really trying everything and, and also still be able to be home to raise my daughter. Not every day, all day, but just the minimal amount. Because if I was going to go into the kitchen, that was never going to happen. And also I would have been a miserable person. (laughs) But because we're in a free fall of sorts at this moment, because none of us have any idea how we're handling things or how we should handle things, I think I'm reminded often that sometimes or often we should trust the free fall more than anything, Mm -hmm. Does not to say that I don't have issues with anxiety like other people during this time, and this did not, not bring up things for me because it has, and I have concerns and fears. Absolutely. I just think that maybe, because I think we all have a strength in this in, in some way. Some people are great at putting their head down. Some people are great at getting involved. Um, I think the thing for me that works for me and my family is that, I'm a little bit like, well, like if I can kind of give up everything and or not or not even give up everything, but been stuck with this last ditch effort to have a career, and this this odd thing that I can do is working and actually need it at this point, then I can get through this because I know the thing that got me through getting to here is getting me through the pandemic, which means I have a good community, I have a supportive family. I mean, I have a family that was like, we support you emotionally and what you need to do to become a psychic medium for a profession. And that I know that like my daughter's taken care of. It's, It's that basic. So I think in that way, I have a little bit of clarity and I'm only saying a little bit because I have my own, you know, I have my own fears and issues, definitely.
1: Heather, is there as a medical intuitive, a psychic and a medium, What would you want to share with our listeners to trust the free fall, the unknowns? Is there a message or something you would want to share with our listeners?
2: I would say, as we were talking earlier about creativity, and I want to combine that with the nervous system, because that's where we're really hitting everybody. All illnesses, all emotional issues. Listen more to your intuition and it's not so much go with your gut as is try to sit in the place where you do something, where you feel comfortable. There's a certain place where people are doing something creative and it can be writing, it could be needlepoint, it could be art, it could be, it could be doing numbers for the books. But certain people fall into, you know, everybody falls into something that you're like, you know what, I'm really good at this one thing, I can get lost in it. I don't know anybody that doesn't have that. the the brain is wired that way to have that thing. Try to connect with that place because it alleviates overthinking and we are bombarded with information right now, information of other people's opinions. And this sort of brings us back to center and calms the nervous system. So it's a good time to sort of find that thing that you do that brings the quiet and i'm talking like high blood pressure nervous system type things Um, that's what i think is really important because our own physical um, depletion is very much affecting our minds
1: thank you so much heather thank you sabrina you're welcome it's such a pleasure to speak with you i am speaking with heather carlucci who is a psychic a medium and a medical intuitive you can learn more about her. You can contact her at heathercarlucci.com. I've been speaking with Heather Carlucci from her home in the Sullivan County Catskills of New York. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels.
0: WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello.
1: They'd heard this music, they lived it and breathed it. This is why the Americana acts of today, they all revere the Basement Tapes. It's home. It's their university.
0: I'm Rita Houston. Join me for true musical rarities that have finally seen the light of day. It's Bob Dylan,
1: The Complete Basement Tapes.
2: Friday night at 10 on Radio Catskill.
1: Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com.
0: Support comes from the Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville, featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th century house. Vintagehouseejville.com and on Instagram at vintntagehousee
2: Listening to the Retro Cocktail Hour.